This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. An unlikely friendship begins in the Paramount Plus original movie, Little Wing, starring Brooklyn Prince with Kelly Riley and Brian Cox. Reeling from her parents' divorce, Caitlin steals a valuable bird to save her home, but instead forms a bond with the owner, leading to a new outlook on life. Little Wing, now streaming exclusively on Paramount Plus. Head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Rated PG 13. You're listening to Imaginary Worlds, a show about how we create them and why we suspend our disbelief. I'm Eric Malinsky. So one of the reasons I started this podcast is because sometimes in my work, I'll have a great interview with somebody, but I only get to use a few minutes of tape. And the rest of it is just sitting on my desktop for years and it will bug me. I feel like it's a shame that nobody gets to hear it. Like a few years ago, I interviewed Ronald D. Moore, He's best known for rebooting Battlestar Galactica and turning that show into a sophisticated allegory for the war on terror. And he was way ahead of the curve in using science fiction to explore how 9-11 had affected us. But I actually didn't interview him about Battlestar Galactica. So, you know, I have a regular gig working at the show called Studio 360, and they have a series called Aha Moments, where artists talk about a work of art that inspired them to do what they do. And he was talking about Star Trek, the original series. And these aha moments are really short. But his story was epic. I mean, it wasn't just about being a fan. It took on these, like, Joseph Campbell elements of hero worship and growing up to replace your father figures. And he's such a good storyteller, I just kind of stepped out of the way and let him talk. And I'm going to do that again right now. So here is Ronald D. Moore telling his own origin story. My father was a uh, Marine uh, infantry officer in, the v- in Vietnam. He, uh, he came home and was medically discharged, and then w- we went back to his, his hometown, Chowchilla, and that's where I grew up, and I grew up in a household with uh, you know, mem- military memorabilia and uh, lots of books on the shelves that were military history, and that's sort of where my, my interest in that came from. When I was a kid, I originally wanted to be a pilot and an astronaut. Those were my first loves, as I wanted to fly, and I really wanted to be an astronaut. I, I was very taken with the, the early moon landings. I, one of my earliest memories is, is watching Neil Armstrong walk on the moon when I was like four or five years old. And that experience is what uh, propelled me into science fiction. I started anything that was on TV that had spaceships in it, I wanted to watch. I had... Uh, become interested in uh, Lost in Space on TV, which was syndicated in uh, my area. So every day when I came home from school, I would turn on Channel 26 in the Central Valley and watch Lost in Space, which was geared for very young audiences and kids, and I was fascinated with it and loved it. It was my favorite show. Less talk, more action, please. Silence, you ninny. And then there was this other show that came on sort of afterward called Star Trek, and I eventually started watching that, And as I got older into the third and fourth grades, it started to have more meaning for me and I started to really like that show more. And I kind of 
dismissed Lost in Space as, as a kiddie show, and Star Trek was my show, and it, it would be my show from that point into adulthood. Space, a final frontier. Star Trek was originally on the air on NBC from uh, 1966 to uh, early 1969. Uh, three seasons, 79 episodes, and I didn't really start watching it until uh, 1973, 1974. So it was in strip syndication where it was on five days a week, which was even better because then I could watch it every day after school. We're human beings with the blood of a million savage years on our hands. But we can stop it. We can admit that we're killers, but we're not going to kill today. I was a Kirk fan. I mean, I thought Kirk was was the ultimate hero, and I wanted to be Kirk. Uh, he, he just, he had it all. He had a sense of humor, and yet there was this sort of loneliness of command that they always played, and there was something noble about that, and something self-sacrificing, and he always, you know, his only mistress was his ship, and there, I, there was something about that sort of romantic idea of a man and his ship that I always loved and, and just kind of spoke to me as a young boy. Welcome home, Captain. I started pirating my own episodes. I had an audio recorder, a, you know, a standard audio cassette recorder that my dad had that he let me borrow, and I would set it next to the television speaker and record episodes. And many a night, I can remember drifting off to bed, listening to episodes of the Starship Enterprise. And to this day, I'll watch an episode from the original series, say, and I'll know exactly what sound cue is coming up, but I might be surprised by what's actually on screen because I kind of remember it like a radio show. Kirk to Enterprise. Scotty? Scott here, Captain. We're ready to beam up. I started writing uh, just little short stories of, of adventures in the Enterprise, and there were, there were stories that the Enterprise implied that it happened off camera or backstories of the characters that I wanted to write. My favorite episode of the original series was called Conscience of the King. It was very Shakespearean overtly and, and metaphorically about a, a company of Shakespearean actors that come aboard the Enterprise, and Kirk suspects that the lead actor is actually uh, a murderer from long ago who was uh, known as Kodos the Executioner, and he had instituted this mass murder of a bunch of colonists on a colony many years ago when Kirk was a young midshipman and was happened to be there, and he's one of the few men that had actually seen Kodos in person. I saw him once 20 years ago. Men change. Memory changes. What if you decide he is Kodos? What then? Do you play God, carry his head through the corridors in triumph? That won't bring back the dead, Jim. And I wrote various versions of the backstories. What I wrote as a kid, I would write all these little short stories of what young Jim Kirk was like on the planet of Tarsus when Kodos the Executioner killed all those colonists. And I wrote the, the story in like at least a half dozen different ways. He was shipwrecked there in one version, one version he was assigned there, one version he followed a girl that, that led him there, another version he was born there and nobody knew it. It was like I, I spun out all these scenarios about what this backstory could have meant. I don't know that I was aware of the nerdy, trekky kind of stereotype for quite some time, mercifully so. And it probably wasn't until I left Chowchilla and I was in college that, you know, and I had a Captain Kirk poster in my in my dorm room. And people started going, oh, he's one of those geeks. And I was like, what do you mean? It's like everybody likes Star Trek, don't you? I left Cornell my senior year. I sort of flunked out, sort of. 
<laughs> when you stop going to class completely, they call it flunking out. <laughs> they ask you to leave. So I left. And uh, I just sort of started life over when I didn't have a, a, a future anymore. And I moved to L.A. and was sleeping on a friend's floor and taking a bunch of odd jobs. And eventually I started dating this girl who found out that I was a fan of the original Star Trek series. And she had a connection to Star Trek The Next Generation, which was in its second season of production at that point. And she said, oh, you know, well, I know people over at Next Gen and I could get you a tour of the sets. And I was like, oh, my God, this is amazing. And then I just sat down and I took a shot for no real reason. I just decided I was going to write an episode. And I sat down and wrote an episode of Next Generation. And I tucked it under my arm and I brought it with me on the set tour. And I conned the guy that was giving me the set tour into reading it. And he liked it. And it turned out he was one of Gene Roddenberry's assistants. I'm literally the character, the person had the parents say to them, you know, Star Trek's not going to, like, get you a job someday. <laughs> you know, this, all this Star Trek stuff, you know, that's all fine and good for now, but it's not going to amount to anything. You realize that. And, you know, like in the storybook ending, eventually I end up on Star Trek. And I wrote The Adventures of the Enterprise week after week. I stood on its bridge. I sat in its captain's chair. And eventually I would kill Captain Kirk. You know, I wrote, uh, co-wrote Star Trek Generations. And in that movie, we killed Captain Kirk, and, you know, I literally killed my childhood hero. Did we do that? We make a difference. Oh, yes. We made a difference. Thank you. At least I could, too. For the captain of the Enterprise. It's a very deep, tender place on some level. I really wanted to do that, to write the last chapter, because then that made him human and made him one of us, and somehow it made him real. I definitely got to a place where I started um, feeling the restraints of Star Trek. Gene had set up Star Trek in a very specific universe that was important to him. And, and it was important to him that there was no religion in the future. It was important to him that there was a one-world government, that, that, that the Federation was a peaceful place, that Starfleet was an arm of exploration, on and on and on. There were all these sorts of rules. And one of the rules was there was no conflict between the characters, Gene said, and, you know, that petty jealousies between members of Starfleet would be gone by the time of the next generation. A lot of things that we didn't buy and didn't really believe and that we kind of felt that Gene had changed his tune since the original show because the original show was all about conflict between the original characters. And the Federation wasn't always in the right in the old days. But as Gene had gotten older and when Gene did the later uh, incarnations of Trek, he had sort of much more uh, ironclad rules about this sort of stuff. And we just started really rebelling against it. And the writer's room became very much, you know, the, the, the radicals trying to take over where we were constantly looking for ways to sort of dirty up the Enterprise characters, to make them fight with one another, to have them make uh, bad decisions, to have them uh, encounter more morally complex situations where maybe the right answer wasn't apparent. Another message coming in. It's Captain Picard. Mr. Data, you were ordered to rendezvous with the fleet at Gamma Eridum. Acknowledge. Stand by, Captain. Mr. Hobson, prepare to fire. Didn't you hear? Captain Picard wants us... Fire. Fire! 
we pushed the boundaries certainly further than they wanted us to and and somewhat beyond but still there was a fundamental place that we couldn't go you know, i couldn't get to where i wanted to go which was to really challenge the audience to really have the characters do things that were really scary and horrific and, and morally questionable and really challenge the audience to think about what we were talking about and what did war mean and what were the reasons worth fighting for what would it do to security what it would do for, for freedom as of this moment we are at war and in galactica i just decided to cut against every single thing that i had uh, that frustrated me at Trek, and some just because I wanted to change. I didn't want a captain's chair, and I didn't want a big view screen. And so we're not going to do that. We're going to have a CIC, and there's no place for the captain to sit. You know, a lot of these choices were just, we're just going to, if Trek went right, we're going to go left, because Trek had set the gold standard for sci-fi and TV for so long, and it had just become calcified on a certain level. It sort of gotten into a groove, and it wasn't changing, and it felt very constrictive, and I felt the need to break away and, and set up a new a new uh, paradigm. The Cylons have the ability to mimic human form. They look like us now. The, the question of what does it mean to be human was present throughout the original Trek's run, through all the subsequent Treks, and was very much in Galactica and in Caprica. I mean, that's still one of the great questions of science fiction is how do you define uh, human beings? How do you define a soul? Can you quantify it? Can you digitize it? Can you copy it? At what point does a creation become alive? Is there a point where you accept it as a human being, or is there something uh, indefinable that we call a soul that still separates us from our creations? And I think those those sorts of dilemmas are, are they just go through science fiction. I, we continue to sort of wrestle with them. There must be some way out of here, said the Joker to the thief. There's too much confusion. Ronald D. Moore. His new show is called Outlander. It's on the Stars Network. And if you want to hear more from him, he does a podcast after every episode of whatever show he's working on, and he calls it the Smoking Lamp Podcast. Because he turns on a lamp, lights up a cigarette, talks about his creative process. Well, maybe the cat runs by or his wife comes in. And I don't even like listening to DVD commentaries, but it's totally mesmerizing. Well, that's it for this week's show. Thanks for listening. You can like Imaginary Worlds on Facebook or leave a comment in iTunes. I tweet at Ian Malinsky. The show's website is imaginaryworldspodcast.org. So say we all. $5,000. That's the average amount of money people in the U.S. are now spending on gas in a year. Five grand. That's crazy. If you drive, you have to download Upside, the free app that gives you cash back every time you get gas. That's right. You can earn real cash back with Upside just by buying the gas you're already buying. You can literally start earning cash back today. I use Upside every time I fill up, and I've already made around two, $300. You're putting gas in your car anyway. Why not get real cash back? 
back. If you like free money, download Upside. I'm saving the cash I earn from using Upside to help pay for a vacation later this year. Download the free Upside app now to earn cash back every time you buy gas. Use promo code SAVE to get an extra 25 cents per gallon on your first tank. You can cash out anytime right to your bank, PayPal, or a gift card for Amazon and other brands. Just download the free Upside app and use promo code SAVE for a 25 cents per gallon bonus on your first tank. That's code SAVE for a 25 cents per gallon bonus. 